The title of this talk is deliberately provocative. Who am I to say that there was a man who made Winston Churchill, even though I'm just going to talk about Churchill the orator? I am not a Churchill scholar. I am not a trained historian. I can only refer you to the words of Churchill himself. Churchill was once asked on whom or on what he had based his oratorical style. He replied, and I quote, it was an American statesman who inspired me and taught me how to use every note of the human voice like an organ. He was my model. I learned from him how to hold thousands in thrall, end quote. The statesman to whom Churchill referred was in fact an Irish-American statesman named William Burke Cochran. Cochran was born in Ireland in 1854, but he emigrated to the United States when he was 17. He settled in New York. There he became a successful lawyer, a member of the US Congress, and a friend and confidant of some of the, some of the leading men of the time, including inventor Thomas Edison, publisher Joseph Pulitzer, writer Mark Twain, and Presidents Grover Cleveland and Teddy Roosevelt. He also became known as America's greatest living orator. But how did this man become the model for Winston Churchill? In the spring of 1895, Cochran visited Paris. There, he met the beautiful and vivacious widow of an English lord. And those of you who know Churchill know what's coming next. The widow was Jenny Churchill widow of Lord Randolph Churchill and mother of Winston. Jenny, remember, was an American, and she, too, was from New York. Cochran and Jenny were instantly drawn to each other. They had a torrid love affair. <clears throat> it burned hot, burned out. It didn't last, but though they ceased to be lovers, they remained devoted friends. When Jenny died in 1921, Cochran was with her. Some months after Cochran returned home, he heard from Jenny. Her son Winston, then 20 years old, was making his first trip to America. Would Cochran please host the young scamp when he passed through New York? Cochran was then 41 and a widower. He had always wanted a son of his own. It was natural that he should have fatherly feelings for the son of his beloved Jenny. And young Winston, whose own father had just died, certainly needed a father figure at that point in his life. I wonder, is it possible for us to clear our, clear our minds even for a few moments of all we know of Churchill the great man and try to imagine him as he was at 20 when he met Cochran? In 1895, Churchill was 20 years old, a newly minted subaltern just out of Sandhurst. He was short, lean, brash, and athletic, with a full head of copper-colored hair. Up to that time, he had shown few signs of his future greatness. He had won a prize at Harrow for memorizing and reciting all 1,200 lines of Macaulay's Lays of Ancient Rome. He was an inter-school fencing champion, and he had demonstrated a flair for the English language. But he was also notoriously undisciplined and unfocused. He excelled at the subjects that engaged his interest and funked those that bored him. During one of young Winston's rare conversations with his father, Lord Randolph asked him what he knew about the Grand Remonstrance, Parliament's challenge to King Charles I in 1641. After some hesitation, Winston replied, 
In the end, Parliament beat the king and cut his head off. This seemed to me the grandest remonstrance imaginable. <clears throat> Lord Randolph was not amused. He would regularly send his son severe letters. <laughs> he would regularly send his son severe letters chiding him for his total want of application and warning him that if he didn't mend his ways, he would become a mere social wastrel. But these parental admonitions seemed to have li had little effect on young Winston's restless spirit or his cocky self-assurance. A tutor whom Lord Randolph had engaged to help Winston cram for his entrance examinations at Sandhurst complained of his charge that he was too much inclined to teach his instructors instead of endeavoring to learn from them. <clears throat> In short, when Churchill met Cochrane, he rather resembled another thoroughly exasperating young man, a character from a play by Bernard Shaw. He knows nothing, and he thinks he knows everything. <clears throat> that points clearly to a political career. <laughs> Nevertheless, Cochrane saw in Churchill the potential that even his nearest and dearest had missed. Churchill's son Randolph, in his massive biography of his father, said this about young Winston's first meeting with Cochrane. Burke Cochrane must certainly have been a man of profound discernment and judgment of character. As far as we know, he was the first man or woman Churchill met on level terms who really saw his point and his potentialities. At this time, Churchill had few friends among his contemporaries and almost none among his elders. His correspondence with Cochrane was the first that he entered into with a mature man. Cochrane, in some ways, fulfilled a role that Lord Randolph should have filled had he survived. Indeed, Cochrane would tell Churchill very early in their acquaintance, I firmly believe that you would take a commanding position in public life at the first opportunity which arose and I have always felt that true capacity either makes or finds its opportunity. Music's a long, young Churchill's ear. Certainly, uh, you never heard this from his father. Churchill responded warmly to Cochrane. He would later write of their first meeting, when I was a young man, he instantly gained my confidence, and I feel that I owe the best things in my career to him. Churchill was Cochrane's guest for a week, early in November of 1895. According to Churchill, they had great discussions on every conceivable subject from economics to yacht racing. They found that they had certain principles in common. One was a passionate love of liberty. Today, of course, we honor Churchill as the man who saved Britain and very likely the whole of Western civilization from the Nazi jackboot. But Churchill's love of liberty was lifelong. While he was still at Sandhurst, just before he met Cochrane, he made a puckish speech in favor of admitting, um, in favor of admitting, well, well, shall we say, admitting a certain class of woman to the bar of London's Empire Theater. <clears throat> Ladies of the Empire, he declared grandly, I stand for liberty. Cochrane, who was more staid, was called the American Burke after the great 18th century Anglo-Irish statesman and orator, Edmund Burke. The accolade was accorded him not only for his erudition and eloquence, but also for his humanity. Edmund Burke had championed the American colonists, English Catholics, and the peoples of Ireland and India. Cochrane championed Ireland, American Catholics, African Americans, 
immigrants, and labor unions. He was the opponent of tariffs, imperialism, and the death penalty. And he was a pacifist. It was entirely appropriate that when Cochrane's greatest speeches were collected and published posthumously in 1925, the volume bore the title, In the Name of Liberty. Because they both loved liberty, Churchill and Cochrane believed in free trade. Free trade would be crucial to Churchill's career after he was elected to Parliament in 1900. When Churchill met Cochrane, Britain had free trade, but there were prominent Tories who wanted to make the British Empire a self-contained, closed market. Churchill would leave the Tory party over this issue in 1904. He would return 20 years later only when the Tories themselves had returned to free trade. America at that time had staggeringly high tariffs, nearly 50% on average. Tariffs were favored by the Republicans, who represented the manufacturing and moneyed interests, and were opposed by Democrats like Cochrane, who represented the farmers and the workers. Churchill and Cochrane were free traders for similar reasons. Chief among those reasons was the fact that free trade meant lower prices for the working poor. How much influence did Cochrane have on Churchill's free trade stand? Let me quote from a major speech that Cochrane delivered at the National Liberal Club in London on July 15, 1903. Cochrane said, since government of itself can create nothing, it can have nothing of its own to bestow on anybody. If it undertakes to enrich one man, the thing which it gives to him, it must take from some other man. Now let me quote from a speech that Churchill gave in Birmingham just four months later. Churchill said, governments create nothing and have nothing to give away but what they have first taken away. You may put money in the pocket of one set of Englishmen, but it will be money taken from the pockets of another set of Englishmen. <laughs> was, Cochran plagiarized, was Churchill plagiarizing Cochrane? No. Churchill had not been present at Cochrane's Liberal Club speech and Cochrane did not send him the text until after Churchill had spoken at Birmingham. But the striking similarity between the two speeches demonstrates just how deeply Churchill had absorbed Cochrane's ideas. Churchill left the Tories for the Liberals at the end of May in the following year. Just weeks afterwards, he's writing to Cochrane, I beg you to send me as much of your political literature as you can, particularly your own speeches. As I have told you before, you have powerfully influenced me in the political conceptions I have formed. So, Churchill wanted Cochrane's speeches. What else did he get from Cochrane? How exactly did Cochrane help Churchill become one of the greatest orators of all time? Well, for one thing, Cochrane introduced Churchill to his own favorite orator, who was Edmund Burke. Cochrane told Churchill that Burke mastered the English language as a man masters a horse. Burke was also a man of wide learning. Churchill's own education had been spotty. In 1896, about a year after meeting Cochrane, Churchill was posted to India. There he spent much of his free, free time trying to fill the gaps in his knowledge by extensive reading. Cochrane advised him on what to read. One biographer has estimated that nearly every book Churchill read in India could be found in Cochrane's own considerable library in New York City. What about rhetorical devices? 
Cochran told Churchill that the key to making a speech or addressing a jury was this. Make one simple, bold point and keep pounding on it with many illustrations and examples. Churchill would repeat this admonition throughout his life. Once he said a speech was like a symphony. It could have three movements, but it must have one dominant theme. On another occasion, Churchill was having lunch at a fashionable restaurant. He sent the, des the dessert back to the kitchen, telling the waiter, pray take this pudding away, it has no theme. <laughs> and Churchill would pass along this advice of Cochrane's to other young, up-and-coming parliamentarians who were struggling to find their own voices. When Harold Macmillan, the future Prime Minister, gave his first speech to the House of Commons in 1923, he asked Churchill for his opinion. Churchill replied, Harold, Everyone in the gallery is saying, young Macmillan's giving his maiden address. Then they ask, what's it about? And Harold, no one can say in one sentence what the speech is about. And if you can't say in one sentence what the speech is about, it is not worth giving. What else did Churchill get from Cochrane? We get some strong hints from an unpublished essay that Churchill wrote in 1897. He called it the scaffolding of rhetoric. The essay begins, of all the talents bestowed upon men, none is so precious as the gift of oratory. He who enjoys it wields a power more durable than that of a great king. He is an independent force in the world. Abandoned by his party, betrayed by his friends, stripped of his offices, whoever can command this power is still formidable. Now, when we read this passage today, what's the first thought that crosses our minds? we think immediately of Churchill himself. Churchill during the so-called wilderness years leading up to World War II. Churchill was out of office, shunned, belittled, widely regarded as finished. Yet by the sheer power of his rhetoric, he was able to awaken his countrymen to the Nazi threat and ultimately to become prime minister. Yes, today we think of Churchill. But who was Churchill thinking of when he wrote those words in 1897? <clears throat> the previous year, 1896, had seen one of the most dramatic and fiercely contested presidential elections in American history. The crooks of the campaign was the gold standard. The Republicans were for the gold standard and monetary stability. The Democrats wanted a gold and silver standard. Cheaper dollars, easy money, inflation. The Democrats had nominated a little-known 37-year-old former congressman named William Jennings Bryan. Bryan was a spellbinding orator. He is still remembered for the stirring convention speech that won him the nomination. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. <clears throat> Bryan's... I've got a strong voice, but not that strong. <laughs> Bryan's incendiary rhetoric ignited a political prairie fire. He had a real chance of becoming president, and he might have made it, but for the intervention of the one politician in America who could out-talk him, William Burke Cochran. <clears throat> Cochran was a gold standard Democrat. He opposed cheapening the currency for the same reason that he opposed tariffs. 
Both meant higher prices for working people while their wages would stay the same. Cochran undertook a nationwide speaking tour on behalf of the Republican candidate, William McKinley. He did it at his own expense so that no one could accuse him of having been bought by the Republicans. When McKinley was elected, Cochran was called the Warwick of the Democratic Party, after Warwick the Kingmaker in medieval England. He was literally a man who could make and unmake presidents. The power he had as a speaker made him an independent force in the world. And Churchill took note. He followed uh, Cochrane's speaking tour with interest. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a, a letter Churchill wrote to, uh, to Cochrane. Uh, uh, Churchill did not like Brian at all. He said that Brian seemed to him to be uh, an inebriate trying to regulate a chronometer with a crowbar. <clears throat> But he followed Cochrane's speaking tour and he wrote, please send me press cuttings of your speeches. Churchill says much more in the scaffolding of rhetoric and Cochrane's influence is evident throughout. Cochrane talks about, oh, sorry, Churchill talks about oratory on the grand scale. He talks about correctness of diction, the importance of using the best possible word. He talks about rhythm, the use of long rolling sonorous sentences to appeal to the ears of the audience. <clears throat> he talks about the accumulation of argument. He says, the climax of oratory is reached by a rapid succession of waves of sound and vivid pictures. And he notes the tendency to wild extravagance of language that is, evidence in the, that is evident in most perorations. Now all of this he would have observed in Cochrane. I'll give you just one example. I've already mentioned Cochrane's speech to the Liberal Club in 1903. In this speech, Cochrane moves to its conclusion with a full-throated aria extolling the blessings that accrue to Britain from free trade. <clears throat> at this moment, in every quarter of the globe, forces are at work to supply your necessities and improve your condition. As I speak, men are tending flocks on Australian fields and shearing, wool, and shearing wool that will clothe you during the coming winter. On western lands, men are reaping grain to supply your daily bread. In mines deep underground, men are swinging pickaxes and shovels to wrest from the bosom of the earth the ores essential to the efficiency of your industry. Under tropical skies, dusky hands are gathering from bending boughs luscious fruits, which in a few days will be offered for your consumption on the streets of London. Over shining rails, locomotives are drawing trains. On heaving surges, sailors are piloting barks. Through arid desert, Arabs are guiding caravans, all charged with the fruits of industry to be placed here freely at your feet. You alone, among all the peoples of the earth, encourage this gracious tribute and enjoy its full benefit. For here alone, it is received freely, without imposition, restriction, or tax while everywhere else, barriers are raised against it by stupidity and folly. Now, don't these rolling sentences remind you of Churchill? But in the scaffolding of rhetoric, Churchill also talks about simplicity, intimacy, and sincerity. He says that a speaker, wherever possible, should employ short, homely words of common usage. He talks about how a speaker can persuade by means of analogy. An apt analogy, he says, appeals to the everyday knowledge of the listener. 
And he talks about the importance of sincerity. For an orator to convince others, he says, he must himself believe. Here, let me note another piece of advice that Cochrane gave Churchill. Speak the simple truth. And yes, Cochrane himself used simple, homely, down-to-earth language and illustrations in his speeches, juxtaposed with his more forward passages. In the Liberal Club speech from which I have just quoted, Cochrane also said, in between the forward, the forward passages, I have a farm on Long Island. I require plows. I am told that if I don't have protection from foreign plows, they'll be dumped on me. If that means I'll get plows cheaper than my own country can produce them, I say dump on. <clears throat> In 1943, Harold Nicholson summed up the secret of Churchill's rhetorical power in a single laser beam insight. The winning formula, he said, was a combination of great flights of oratory with sudden swoops into the intimate and conversational. We see this especially in Churchill's great wartime speeches. I will quote two very brief and familiar examples. First, his tribute to the RAF during the Battle of Britain in 1940. Churchill said, the gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, and indeed throughout the world, goes out to the British airmen who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. And then, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Second, let me quote Churchill's response to President Franklin Roosevelt in February of 1941. FDR had sent Churchill an expression of support for Britain. Churchill said, we shall not fail or falter. We shall not weaken or tire. Neither the sudden shock of battle nor the long-drawn trials of vigilance and exertion will wear us down. And then, give us the tools and we will finish the job. Now, of course, I must acknowledge that Churchill's great oratory was the product of many influences. Churchill had read Gibbon and Macaulay. He was intimately acquainted with the King James Bible and the plays of Shakespeare. He had memorized reams of poetry. He had studied the speeches of all the great parliamentary leaders who had preceded him. Pitt, Burke, Disraeli, Gladstone, his father, Lord Randolph Churchill. He was a journalist. He had an eye for detail and a flair for vivid language. He is supposed to have read over 5,000 books and had a vocabulary of 65,000 words, two or three times that of the average person. And yet, and yet, for all that, it was Cochrane whom he credited for his prowess as a speaker. Now, I began this talk with a quote from Churchill in which he said of Cochrane, he was my model. I did not tell you when Churchill said this, and I did not tell you to whom Churchill said this. He said it in 1953, at the end of his career, and he said it to Adlai Stevenson. Stevenson had been the Democratic Party's candidate for president a year earlier. Stevenson lost to Dwight Eisenhower, you may remember. According to Stevenson, Churchill then went on to quote, from memory, long passages from speeches that Cochrane had given over half a century before. 
but there is even stronger evidence of the esteem in which Churchill held Cochrane. In 1946, at another Westminster College, this one in Fulton, Missouri, Churchill gave the single most important of his post-war addresses. He called it the sinews of peace. We know it as the Iron Curtain speech. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an Iron Curtain has descended across the continent. Churchill had been turned out of Downing Street the year before. He was then leader of the opposition. But he knew that the speech in Fulton was going to put Churchill back where Churchill knew that Churchill belonged, smack dab at the center of world affairs. <clears throat> the speech was a major news event. Eyes of the world focused on little Fulton, Missouri. Churchill was introduced by the President of the United States, Harry S. Truman. His words were broadcast throughout the whole nation. And it was in that speech that he chose to honor the memory of his mentor and model. He said this, I have often used words which I learned 50 years ago from a great Irish-American orator, a friend of mine, Mr. Burke Cochran. There is enough for all. The earth is a generous mother. She will provide in plentiful abundance food for all her children if they will but cultivate her soil in justice and in peace. That was Churchill's favorite quote from Cochrane. Cochrane had told Churchill to master the English language the way a man masters a horse, as Burke did. Churchill did more than master the English language. Some said that he mobilized it and sent it into battle. Would he have been able to do that if he had never met Burke Cochrane? We'll never know. We know only this that to the end of his days, Churchill was conscious that he owed Cochrane a very great debt. And through Churchill, so do we all. Thank you. <laughs>